0: Please turn with me in your Bible, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 73. Psalm 119, let's begin reading in verse 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me, according to the word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you have given to us. And Lord, we do ask that today, Lord, your loving kindness would come to us, your compassion. Lord, that you would give it to us according to your word. Lord, that we might know you the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, we know that you are a righteous God, that you do all things well, that you are good and that you do good. So, Father, we pray today that you would teach us, Lord, from your good word and that you would fill us, Lord, with all knowledge and wisdom, Lord, giving us a heart to believe and a mind to understand. So, Lord, be with your servants today. Lord, teach us to walk in the path of your commandments. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in Psalm 119, the prophet continues with his uh, exhortation for us to love and long for the word of God by extolling to us the many great virtues found in the word of Christ. We remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 to 25, there the apostle Peter says this, It says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. There, the Apostle tells us that we were born again, right? The new life, the new birth that has been given to us, came about by a seed that is imperishable. The imperishable word of God, the means used by God to give new life, to give eternal life, to give spiritual life to his people is the word of God. The spirit of God uses the word of God to create the child of God. And this word of God is a living word. It is an enduring word, according to the apostle, living in that the word of God has life in it. The word of God is not a dead book. It is not a cold, dead, lifeless book, but it is a living and an active book. It is full of life. It gives life to those who are dead and it is the source of life for all of God's children. Also, he says, the word is enduring. It continues from generation to generation. God's word does not change. The truths proclaimed by the prophet David are the same truths it proclaims today in our own generation. And these are still true. Still valid, still righteous, still good. This in contrast to man. God's word is enduring. It will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. But mankind is like grass. Mankind is like the flower of the field. Here one day and gone the next. It withers and it falls away. And this is what the prophet David knows to be true. He knows and he considers that his life His present life is very short. He is but a vapor that appears for a day and then is gone. He is like the grass of the field that will wither and die. But he also knows that there is a life to come. That there is a greater life that is coming, a a, a greater life than this present life. And that when his physical life comes to an end, he will enter into the life to come where either one will enjoy eternal comforts with God or one will have eternal death in the lake of fire. He doesn't want to go to hell. He doesn't want eternal death. He wants eternal life with God. He's not living for this world because he knows there's a world to come. And that's the world that he's living for. And he knows the means that God uses to grant eternal life to his people is the living, enduring, abiding word of God. This is why Psalm 119 speaks so highly of the word of God. This is why he delights in it. This is why he clings to it. It's almost as if he believes his life is dependent on it. And it is. This is why he clings as he does to the word of God. And this is the way that we have to be as well. We must see that our eternal destiny, our spiritual life is bound up with the word of God. We cannot neglect it. We cannot take it lightly, but we must hold fast to God's word. No one ever has and no one ever will enter into the kingdom of God apart from the word of God. It is only through the word of Christ that God gives life to his people. So how can we neglect the source of our life? We cannot do so. This is the same as the prophet Moses said. In Deuteronomy 32, 46 to 47, he said, "'Take to heart all the words "'with which I am warning you today, "'which you shall command your sons to observe carefully,' even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. That's what the prophet David knows. It's not an idle word. It is his life. And this is why he longs for it. He delights in it so much. And this is the way that we should be as well. So let's turn to Psalm 119 and we'll pick up in verse 73 this morning. There he says, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Here, he says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. The prophet is acknowledging God's miraculous power in his life. And this would be true of him in two ways. In two ways, God has made him. In two ways, God has fashioned him. First, as his creator, God is the one who has given life to all mankind. He gives to all mankind life, breath, and all things. It says in Genesis 2 7, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is true of mankind in general, that our origin, we came from one man, and that one man was formed by God out of the dust, and God breathed life into him, and he became a living being. Also, this is true of each and every one of us individually. As it says in Psalm 139, 13, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. So God is the one who has fashioned us. He has made each and every one of us. He is our creator. We are his creatures. We owe our life to him. This is true. But not only is that true for David in terms of creation, in terms of his physical life, But also it is true of him in terms of redemption, in terms of his spiritual life. For the prophet David is not speaking as an unbeliever. He's not just talking about his physical life. He's speaking as a redeemed man, one who has undergone new creation, who has been formed and fashioned anew by God spiritually. And in terms of what he is spiritually, where did it all come from? It all came from God. God made him, God fashioned him, both in his physical life and also now in his spiritual life as well. 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter four. It says in verse six. 2 Corinthians 4, six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God, the same God who brought light out of darkness, right? At creation, God did this. He also now has brought light out of darkness in terms of us spiritually, in terms of what we were spiritually. We were in darkness, but now we are in light. And then also 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our sin. Now we've been made alive with Christ. So in these two ways, both in terms of creation and redemption, the redeemed have been fashioned and made by God. The prophet is recognizing his twofold debt to God, that God has rights over his life in both regards. As his creator, he is bound to do the will of God. Right? Doesn't the creator have rights over the creature? Right? Shouldn't the creature look to his creator? Shouldn't he submit to the will of his creator? Shouldn't he have love and obedience to the one who has given life to him? This is what men should do. And this is why in Romans 1, 18 to 32, the sin of man is so grotesque. It is so vile against God because God is the one who has created man, yet sinful man will not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but rather has become futile in his thinking and his foolish hearts have been darkened. The sinful man exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He worships idols of his own making instead of his creator who gave life to him. And this is the way of unbelievers. An unbeliever may acknowledge that his life came from some source outside of himself, right? Most people with a rational mind, a sane mind, will at least admit whether that be impersonal forces, whether that be some false god, or even some might even acknowledge that the God of the Bible is the one that created him. But it ends there with an unbeliever. The creation does not lead to redemption. Creation does not lead them to obey God and to do his will. But David is not a wicked man. David is not an unbelieving man who's dead in his sin. He is a redeemed man. He wants to acknowledge God as his creator. And he wants the knowledge of God as creator to lead him to worship and serve God and to obey God and ultimately to think about God as his redeemer, which is our second obligation to God. We should serve God, not only because he is the one who created us, but also he is the one who has recreated us. He is the one who has given to us the new creation. God is the one who replaced the dead, sinful, stony heart with a new living heart. He is the one who brings life out of the grave. Light out of darkness. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He ransomed us. He is the one that set the captive free. So should we not obey him? Shouldn't we do his will? Since God is the one who has redeemed us and set us free from the slavery of sin. Of course we should. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. verses 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, "'Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body.'" You have been bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself, right? You belong to God, and your body is a temple of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you should honor God with your body, with the way that you use your body and not commit immoralities against God. Also, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12:1 says, "'Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, "'to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, "'acceptable to God, "'which is your spiritual service of worship. "'Do not be conformed to this world, "'but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, "'so that you may prove what is the will of God, "'that which is good and acceptable and perfect.'" You are, he says there, a living, holy sacrifice to God. And the way that we do this is by presenting our bodies to God and by serving Him, by being transformed through the renewal of our mind so that we're not living in sin, but we're doing the will of God. This is what the prophet David wants in verse 73. He recognizes that God, God, you are my creator. God, you are my redeemer. Every good thing I have comes from you. So give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. He recognizes that God is the best one to instruct him. Isn't that true? If God is our creator, then isn't he the best one to tell us how to live? To tell us how we ought to conduct ourselves in this present life? So he is in humility looking to his creator and saying, It's obvious you created me, you redeemed me, so I need you to teach me how to live. I need you to give me understanding so that I can learn your commandments so that I know how to conduct myself in a way that is pleasing to you. This is what he sees and recognizes and this is what we must recognize as well. Verse 74, may those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Already he has mentioned this in verse 63. Psalm 119 verse 63 says, I am a companion of all of those who fear you. And of those who keep your precepts. And this theme will be repeated throughout Psalm 119. This desire that he has to be in fellowship with other believers, with those who fear the Lord. Right? That's the way he's defining other Christians. The fear of God is used to define the child of God, of those who have been born again, who have their sins forgiven, they will have the fear of God. One of the defining characteristics of a child of God is the fear of God. And if a person does not have the fear of the Lord, then they're not a child of God. No matter how many times they may protest, no matter how many times they may say that they belong to God, if they do not fear God, then they do not belong to Him. One of the marks of a wicked person in Romans chapter 3, verse 18 is that there is no fear of God in their eyes. Right. This is one of the defining features of a sinful man, of one who is an unbeliever, is he does not fear God. The wicked have no fear of God, but the righteous have the fear of the Lord. It is a part of our redemption. How can a person even be redeemed? How can a person even begin to understand the gospel without understanding his sin, without understanding the judgment of God, without understanding the guilt of his sin? The penalty of his sin, the wrath of God. It's impossible for someone to have a true knowledge of the gospel, to have a true knowledge of salvation without the knowledge of the judgment of God, which leads to the fear of the Lord. And this is not a fear that we possess only momentarily when we come under the conviction of sin. And then when we go to Christ and our sins are forgiven, now we don't have the fear of God anymore. That's not the way it works. The fear of God is something we have from our regeneration throughout the remainder of our life until our death. When a man comes under the conviction of sin, the fear of God remains with him for the rest of his life. Throughout his redemption, even after his sins have been forgiven. And actually the Bible tells us that the forgiveness of sins... When our sins are forgiven, it leads to the fear of God. Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Now, I say this because, one, nobody fears God today in the churches. And many times, people will put God as our Father in contrast and in opposition to the fear of the Lord. And say, well, we shouldn't fear God because God is our Father. right? He's our Father and we shouldn't fear our Father. Right, That's the problem. That's why their kids are all brats, because their kids don't fear their fathers. There's no fear of discipline, but we should have the fear of God. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There, he's extolling the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. There is forgiveness with God. And what is the purpose of God forgiving us? That you may be feared. That we would have the fear of God. So the true knowledge of sin and judgment leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness and results in the fear of the Lord. And here in Psalm 119, he's placing the emphasis on the fear of God. It is the fear of God that separates a true believer from a false believer, from a superficial Christian, right? We also recognize this. Everyone in Oklahoma claims to be a Christian. And nearly everyone in Oklahoma is probably a member of a church or two or three churches at the same time. Who knows? Everyone says their sins are forgiven. Everyone says that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. No one has ever been to a funeral where the person who died went to hell. Every single person believes that they are going to heaven. So how can we distinguish between a true believer who has his sins forgiven and those who are false believers, who are delusional, who believe lies? What is the difference here? It's the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. He doesn't want to be with superficial Christians. He wants to be with those who fear God, other God-fearers. He doesn't want to be with the wicked, and he doesn't want to be with pretenders. He wants his fellowship to be with true believers, and he knows a true believer will be one who fears God. So he wants to be with other God-fearers. He fears God and wants to keep God's commandments, and he wants to be with other people who fear God and want to keep God's commandments. And here he says that those who fear God, when they see him, they're going to be glad. Right? They are going to rejoice in each other's company. They're going to have fellowship with one another. Right? When we fear God, we want to be with other people who fear God. And when we're with them, it's joyful, it's rejoicing, there's gladness. This is like it is in the end of the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize and know who he is. And he's speaking to them. They're talking about the things of God. And you remember what they said? Did not our hearts burn within us? Did they not burn within us, they said. As we walked along the way, as we talked about these things, this is how it is with the children of God. When they are with one another, with those who fear the Lord, their heart burns within them. It encourages them. Right? It, it, it fans into flame the zeal of the Lord, the things of God, so that our fervor for the Lord burns hotter and hotter and hotter. This is the way that we should be. Right? We know that those who fear God are going to be a help to us, a benefit to us. They're going to encourage me. They're going to help me overcome sin. They're going to sharpen me, and they're going to sanctify me more and more. This is as it says in Proverbs 27:17. "Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. Or Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Right? If a person is a wise man and he wants to live a wise life, a life of wisdom, he doesn't want to be with fools. He knows that those fools are not going to help him. They're going to drag him away. They're going to, to be a burden to him. Right? Their bad company is going to corrupt his good morals and he doesn't want that to happen. So who does he want to be with? Other wise men, other wise men who are walking in wisdom, who are running in the highway of holiness. He wants to be with them because he knows that they are going to help him in his pursuit of wisdom. And this is how we should be. Now, this is the problem with many people. Many people, even many who claim to be Christians, will use lame excuses to neglect the assembling of the saints. Lame excuses to neglect... The fellowship, to neglect public worship, to neglect Bible study, right? Whatever it takes to get out of it, this is what they will do. Now, of course, there are at times legitimate excuses, right? Of course, there are times when there are emergencies where there is a legitimate sickness that comes up that might hinder someone from coming and being with God's people. But in my experience, through the years, nine times out of 10, it's lame. It's a lame excuse That people will use. Because it's not a priority. They don't have the attitude of the prophet. Who wants to be with other God-fearers. And is glad whenever they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. Who is glad and rejoices when he sees those who fear God. And wants to be with them. This is how he is. He fears God and he wants to be with others who fear God. And when they come together, it's not a burden. It's joy. It's gladness. It's rejoicing. It is a delight to be with the people of God. This is the way that we should be. Verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Here, we must be convinced of this truth, that God is righteous all the time. All of his ways, all of his judgments are righteous and true and that God is not evil and God cannot ever commit evil. He cannot ever sin against us. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Romans chapter 3 verse 4. Sinful men accuse God of unrighteousness, especially when they go through hardships, especially when some difficulty arises, right? If God is a good God, then why is this happening to me, right? Why do bad things happen to good people if God is a good God? This is what they'll say. Now, one of the problems there is what? There are no good people, right? No one is good except God alone. And they don't recognize that you are the clay and he is the potter and he can do whatever he wants to you. People don't recognize these things. Sinful men do not recognize these things. So they will accuse God of being unjust and an evil God. But here, the righteous man, he knows God is righteous. God is righteous. And when man contends with God, God will be vindicated. God will be proven true and every man will be proven to be a liar. God will prevail over the false accusations of man. God will be justified and vindicated in the end. That's what the prophet recognizes. He doesn't want this sinful attitude to be in him, to come into his life, because he knows on the day of judgment, God is gonna prevail over all of the false accusations of men. So he is acknowledging the righteousness of God. He doesn't want to accuse God of sin. He does not want to blaspheme the name of the Lord. He wants to recognize the justice and righteousness of God even during his afflictions. In faithfulness, he says, you have afflicted me. He is being afflicted by God But he's not accusing God of unrighteousness, but rather acknowledging, even in his affliction, the faithfulness, the righteousness of God in the judgments of God. Right? Whatever God brings upon us, whatever affliction God chooses to afflict us with, God can never wrong us. God cannot sin against us. He always does things in righteousness and faithfulness even if it is a severe affliction, such as the case of righteous Job. Job, who suffered great afflictions. Afflictions that are unimaginable, the hardships that this man endured. But did God sin against Job whenever God afflicted him in that way? Was God unrighteous for afflicting Job in this way? And we have to say no. It was not unrighteous. And we also have to admit and acknowledge that God is the one who was the ultimate source of his afflictions. Though God used other people, certainly Satan was used and wicked men were used and natural calamities were used to bring these afflictions about. Ultimately, it is accredited to God. Job 42. Job 42 says such Job forty two verse ten at the end of the affliction, it says in Job forty two ten, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all his sisters, and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. There it says that they comforted him for the adversities or the evils that the Lord brought upon him. Ultimately, all of the things that happened to Job came from God came from God. And Job recognizes this. And we have to remember, what are the adversities that Job faced? Well, all of his possessions were taken away from him. His children all died a premature death. Then he was afflicted with severe, excruciating sickness. Did God sin against Job when he did these things to him? Did God go too far? Did God cross the line? When he, God, took all of Job's possessions. Did God go too far when he, God, killed all of his children? When he, God, afflicted him with a severe sickness? Did Job have a right to accuse God of sin? And the answer is no. It says such in Job 40. Job 40 verse 1. Now the point being is if Job did not have a right or a standing to accuse God of sin in these severe afflictions, then do we have a standing? Of course not. And how many of us have ever suffered the way Job suffered? No one. No one here has suffered to the magnitude, to the extent that Job suffered. So we have nothing to whine and cry, and cry about. We have nothing to accuse God of in our afflictions, but we have to learn from the example of Job. Job 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then also in verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgments? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like him? There, are you going to condemn me, God says? Are you going to condemn me in order to justify yourself? And he's rebuking him for this. And ultimately, Job repents and says, I went too far and I should not have said those things. He accused God of sin, but he repented of it. Well, we cannot accuse God of sin either, never. God's judgments are always righteous. Even if his judgments for our life includes the loss of all of our possessions even if his judgment includes the death of all of our children, even if it includes some severe sickness, maybe a terminal illness that takes our life prematurely, God can do no wrong. God's judgments are always righteous. And we must see that God is righteous even if God afflicts us. In in faithfulness, he says, you have afflicted me. You have afflicted me. Right? It's easy for us, to exclaim the righteousness of God in other people's afflictions, but we have to admit it in our own afflictions that God is righteous even when he afflicts us. We must say in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Verse 76 to 77. He says, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Many people, when they suffer afflictions, they murmur, they complain, they grumble against God. They turn away from God. They don't turn to God. But what is he doing in his affliction? He's not running away from God. He's running to God. He's going to God, begging God, asking God for more loving kindness, for more compassion. God, give me these good gifts. Give me these things that you promise to your children. God, you are my heavenly father. And I know that you love me and that you have loving kindness and compassion for your children. So he's going to God, asking God, give me these things, give me your mercy and give me your compassion, even in the midst of my affliction. So he acknowledges the righteousness of God in afflicting him, but he also is acknowledging the love of God, that God loves his children and God gives good gifts to his children. So instead of grumbling against the Lord and turning away from the Lord, he turns to the Lord. He seeks from the Lord the mercy and compassion that he needs to be comforted in the midst of his affliction for the time of his sorrow. And notice here, where does this loving kindness and compassion come from? He says, according to your word, may your loving kindness come to me according to your word, the word of God is the source of comfort in our afflictions. Because it is the word of God that reminds us of the many great promises that God has made to his people. The word of God tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us, that God is with us, that there is a life to come that is far greater than this present life, that our sufferings are light and momentary in comparison of the glory that will be ours, right? The Bible tells us these things, it reminds us of these things and it comforts us, it gives us hope in the midst of our afflictions, it reminds us of the love of God and that we are not to estimate the love of God for us based upon our circumstances, but based upon what He's done for us in Christ and what He will do for us in the life to come. We have to have faith, we have to believe in the world to come. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26 to 39 says this, says in the same way, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together to good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There, the word of God reminds us of all of these promises of God and reminds us that none of these things, none of these afflictions will ever be able to separate us from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He knows this, the prophet does, and that's why he's praying for God to give him his love. Give me your loving kindness. Give me your passion, compassion, according to your word. Remind me of these things to comfort me in my affliction. God's mercy gives us life at our conversion, and God's mercy continues to sustain our life through the time of our sojourning. And this is what he wants. He wants spiritual life. He does not want his affliction to dry up his spirit, to make him dead and dry spiritually. He wants spiritual vitality, spiritual vigor, spiritual life, even in his affliction. And that's what he's seeking from God, And this is what we should seek from God. Not merely physical life, but primarily, ultimately, spiritual life. That's what we should want from God. If all we care about is our physical life, then are we any different than an animal, than a brute beast? That's what animals live for. They live for their bellies, they live for food, they live for the desires of their body, but they don't live for the life to come. Well, we shouldn't be like animals. We should be like men, like spiritual men. We should seek for the higher life, the spiritual life with God. This is what we desperately need. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes. This is what the prophet knows and this is why he is praying for God's mercy. For God to give spiritual life according to his word because he delights in the law of God. And this is the way we should pray as well. Verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. Here, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Right, the prophet David, a righteous man, a believer, he's asking for God to give him loving kindness and compassion that's what he wants for his life and this is also what he would be praying for other believers for the saints for his brothers in christ but for the wicked for the unbelieving for the arrogant who are persecuting him right who are subverting him with a lie what does he want for them make them be ashamed give them shame as their portion give them what they deserve put them to open shame he is asking for God to put the arrogant to shame, to give the arrogant the just judgment of God because they hate God and they hate God's people and they hate the truth. They're subverting him with a lie. Now the question is, is he sinning in praying this? Of course not. He cannot be sinning because he is speaking by the Spirit of God. So is it a sin for the righteous to pray for God to put the arrogant to shame. Well, not according to Psalm 119, verse 78. And when we live a godly life, there will be those who will resist us. They will accuse the righteous of many slanderous things. They will bring up many false accusations and they will hurl them against the godly. He wants these arrogant men to be ashamed, to be exposed for their lies and for all of their evil deeds. This is the same as 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If, no one, if someone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed, the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. in, in Galatians 5, verse 12, he says, I wish those that bother you would emasculate themselves. He says, I wish they would mutilate themselves. Those people who are troubling you, those false teachers who are teaching you heresies, I wish that those people would be mutilated, is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. That's the same as here. He wants them to be ashamed, meaning he wants God's judgment to come upon them. He wants the wrath of God to be poured out upon those who are arrogant and who are subverting him with a lie. Right? That's why he's praying for this. They subvert me, he says, with lies. David is devoted to living a godly life. Right? We have many examples of his attitude, of his heart, of his desire all throughout Psalm 119. He wants to please God. He wants to pursue the things of God. He wants to walk in the pathway of God's commandments. That's what he's devoted his life to doing. He's doing good things. He's minding his own business. He's trying to promote justice and righteousness in the land. He's leading his family in the fear of the Lord. He's teaching the word of God to the people. He's promoting the true knowledge and true worship of God. This is what he dedicated his life to. But what are they doing to him? He's doing good and they're repaying his good with evil. These arrogant men are subverting his good deeds with lies. Accusing him of being a wicked man, of being an evil man, of being a false and pretentious man, when nothing could be further from the truth. And there are many examples of this in the life of David. Many, many examples. Let's look at one 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Notice here that David, his intention, his desire is good. It's good, it's righteous, but they take it and subvert it with a lie. Second Samuel 10 verse 1 says, Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. Here, this king of the Ammonites had died and this king and David had a cordial relationship, a friendly relationship when he was alive. And this king of the Ammonites had shown kindness to David. He had shown kindness to him. Now he's died. So David wants to repay that kindness by showing kindness to his son. He wants to maintain this warm, friendly, cordial relationship with the son, right? So that they're not at odds, they're not at war, they're not at enmity with one another, but they have a good working relationship and to comfort him because most sons are distressed, they're distraught when their father dies. So is this a good thing to do? to comfort someone when their father dies and to want to keep a good, open relationship with a country, with a kingdom that borders your own kingdom so that there's not war, there's not enmity, there's not hostility between them, but friendliness and peace and this kind of relationship. So all of this is good as it comes from David and he's doing what's necessary to establish this and to keep this good relationship with this other kingdom. And then it says, But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he sent counselors, uh, consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. And when they told it to David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then returned. There, David again is doing good. He wants to legitimately console this man, but these princes poison his mind against David. And what do they poison it with? Lies. They are subverting David with a lie. They say, no, no, he's not doing that for a good reason. He's not doing that to console you. He sent them here to spy you out, to be spies, so they could find all the weak spots in your kingdom so that he could come and attack you. And then they treated David's servants cruelly, harshly, humiliated them, and then they started a conflict with David because of this. So David is pursuing peace. He's doing good to all men, and yet they repay his good with lies. And then they have hostility because of what they have done. This is the way it is for the righteous. This is the way it is when we want to live a godly life. There are those that will not let us have peace. They will not let us live a righteous life. But they have to slander. They have to accuse falsely. They have to ridicule. They have to do these things. And this should not surprise us. It's always been this way and it will always be this way. Which of the prophets was not persecuted? Which one of them was not ridiculed and maligned? And did they not speak falsely about? It happened to them. It will happen to us as well. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's what happened to the prophets. This is what will happen to us. When the wicked subvert the righteous with these lies, they are ultimately attacking God. Right? That's who their real beef is. They're undermining truth and righteousness. That's why David wants them to be ashamed. Put them to shame because they are fighting and subverting God. This is what he's praying for, for God to do this. And while he prays and waits for God's vengeance to be realized on the wicked, what is he going to do? Well, notice what he says. I shall meditate on your precepts. He's not going to let the lies of the arrogant distract him from God's word, from meditating on God's precepts, right, from doing the will of God. And when we meditate on God's word, even when arrogant men are subverting us with lies, then it'll keep us under control will keep self-controlled. It'll keep us from being embittered, from getting angry or depressed, from despairing, from taking vengeance into our own hands, repaying evil with evil. Meditating on the word of God will give us a sober mind that is fixated upon doing the will of God. And this is what Daniel the prophet did. Whenever he was subverted with lies from evil men, he did not despair, he did not get embittered, He did not go and try to kill those men in his own power, but instead, what did he do? He did the same thing that he had always done. He went and he offered his prayers to God. He meditated on the word of God. He offered prayers to God. He kept doing the will of God. Verse 79 says, may those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. Here again, he repeats what he said earlier. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. This is a consolation for the people of God. It may appear during the times of affliction that the whole world is against us, that we are all by ourselves, that there's no one else. The arrogant are subverting us with lies, and we are the only one who is left. We are all alone in our affliction. This is the way it seems. This was the case with the prophet Elijah. It says in Romans chapter 11 that Elijah says, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. His experience during his affliction is it seemed to him that there was no one else. I'm all alone, there is no one left. But who do the righteous have? Who will be our companions in this present life? During the time of our sojourning, he says, those who fear God, may those who fear God turn to me. Those who fear the Lord will not forsake God's people. They will not abandon them, but will turn to them. The world will turn away from us. The world will subvert us with lies, with false accusations, but the godly, the righteous, they will see through the lies of the world and they will not abandon the righteous man, but they will come to our aid. They will turn to us during our time of trouble and together we will encourage and strengthen one another in the things of God so that we do not grow weary in doing good, but we will persevere into the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, this is what happened here. Hebrews 10, verse 32 says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. There, in speaking to the Christians... Their sufferings, their uh, afflictions were first that they had been made a public spectacle, right? For their own faith, but also that they became sharers of those who were so treated. Some of them were being exposed publicly, but the others among them were not rejecting those people, but rather showing sympathy to them, being sharers of them in this public shame And they showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted the seizure of their own property because they were willing to associate with the people of God, with those who feared God. This is the way that we must be as well. If suffering arises, and if there are some who are drug away, the rest cannot shrink back and say, well, I'm not going to let anyone know that I know that person because I don't want to suffer the same way that they're suffering. We can't be like this. But rather, we have to turn to one another. Those who fear you, may they turn to me, he says. Even in the midst of my affliction, this is the way that we should be. Whether we are in affliction or whether we have peace, we should turn toward one another, be together, and encourage one another. He says, even those who know your testimonies. That's why he wants to be with them. They know the testimonies of God, and they're going to talk about the testimonies of God with me. And that's what his delight is and so it should be with us. Verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. Now earlier he stated his desire that the arrogant would be put to shame, but here he expresses his desire that he not be put to shame. So the sinner, the wicked, the unbelieving, they deserve to be put to shame, but those who are believers and righteous We don't want to be put to shame, right? We don't want to be ashamed when we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. We want confidence to stand unashamed before the Lord. This is as it says in 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28 says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. He wants them to abide in Christ, live a godly life so that when Christ appears, we will not shrink back in shame at his appearing. Right, those who are practicing sin, those who are wicked and unbelieving, those superficial hypocritical Christians, whenever the Lord appears, they are not going to run toward the Lord. They are not going to be rejoicing at the revealing of Jesus Christ but rather they're going to shrink back in shame because they're going to be exposed for their hypocrisy. He doesn't want that to be true of him. He wants to be confident before the Lord. He does not want to be ashamed when he stands before the Lord. The faithful wise slave who's doing the will of his master, he has nothing to fear. He's not worried about being ashamed when his master comes. He has confidence because he has nothing to be ashamed of because he's doing the will of his master. And so it must be with us. And how can we know that we will not be ashamed when Christ appears? Well, notice what he says in verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. Then I won't be ashamed, he says, when you appear. If our hearts are blameless in God's statutes, which is another way of saying living a godly life, living and pursuing a life of righteousness, practicing righteousness instead of practicing sin. And where does that begin at? Where does it start? In the heart. In the heart, he says, in the inside, and then manifested on the outside in our deeds. He doesn't want to be a pretender. To be a hypocrite, a superficial Christian who does some rituals here and there, who will show up here and there and do some external things, but inwardly he has no love for the Lord. Inwardly he is rebellious against the Lord. He doesn't want that to be true of him. He wants to be a sincere Christian, the real deal, a genuine article, a true believer who is blameless both inside and out. And he knows That if he is not sincere, then he will be put to shame on the day of judgment. But he doesn't want to shrink back. So he says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes. Lord, give me a unified heart. Give me a heart that is resolute on doing your will, on keeping your commandments. Right? That is blameless before you in my pursuit of the things of God. He wants to be an obedient, wise, faithful slave of Christ. Then when the master comes, he will have nothing to be ashamed of, but rather will rejoice in the coming of the master because the master will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 45. 24, verse 45 says, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The blessed slave is the one who the master finds doing his will when he comes, who has a heart that is blameless in this pursuit of the statutes of God. This is what we should desire, and this is what we should pray for, that God would give us this kind of a heart, not an evil and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but a true heart, a sincere heart, a faithful heart, one that wants to do the will of God, and one who, when he fails to do the will of God, is broken over those things, repents of those things, and prays for more mercy and more grace and more strength so that he can pursue God's will more and more throughout his life. May this be our case, may this be our prayer, and may it be true of us, so that when Christ appears, we are not ashamed at his coming. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are such a gracious and a kind master. Lord, you are our creator. Lord, you are the one who has made us, you have fashioned us. Lord, you have given to us both our physical life but, Lord, also our spiritual life. Lord, everything we have, we owe to you. And so, Lord, we should come to you. Lord, we should seek from you good things. Lord, we should have humility before you, not thinking that we are superior to you. Lord, not thinking that we know how to order our life better than you do. But, Lord, since you are our creator and our redeemer, then who better to teach us Lord, who better to instruct us in the way that we should live, Lord, than the one who gave us life. And so, Father, we ask today that you would teach us your commandments, Lord, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that we might learn your word, Lord, learn your rules so that we can do your will. Lord, we know that the pathway of blessing is the pathway of your commandments. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us these things. And Lord, that we would possess this knowledge, Lord, not merely in our mind, but Lord, that it would be within our hearts, Lord, that you would write your law on our hearts, and that from the inside to the outside, Lord, we would be blameless in keeping your statutes. Lord, may we have the fear of God. Lord, may we have in our mind the day of judgment, Lord, that we will all stand before you and we will give an account. Lord, we don't want to shrink back in shame at your appearing. And Lord, we know that all hypocrites, Lord, those who are pretenders, Lord, they will be exposed on the day of judgment. And so, Father, we pray that our faith would be sincere and that, Lord, our desires and our heart, Lord, would not be divided, but rather, Lord, that we would have a resolute and a united heart Lord, to seek after you and to seek your commandments. Lord, as well, we pray that you give us a love for your people. Lord, that we would want to have fellowship and to be with those who fear you. Lord, seeing that they're such a benefit to us. Lord, seeing that they are going to help us to live a godly life. So, Lord, may you bind our hearts together, one to another. And, Lord, may we have a, a true and a sincere desire to meet together with your people, Lord, to be in fellowship and communion with one another, Lord, to encourage and strengthen one another in our faith, and Lord, to teach one another your statutes. So, Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, cause us to love you, Lord, to love your word, Lord, to love your people, and that this would be true of us. Lord, give us your mercy, Lord, your loving kindness, your compassion. Lord, may it come to us, and Lord, may our cup overflow. Lord, with your goodness. So, Lord, be with us in these things. Lord, help us to to turn away from sin. Lord, to turn away from this world and from the wicked. And, Lord, to run toward you and to run in the pathway of your commandments. So, Lord, give us the strength that we need. Lord, give us the grace and mercy, Lord, that is necessary for us to live the life that is pleasing to you lord fill us with your spirit and it is in christ's name that we pray amen